As 2018 winds down, everyone from social media users to mainstream media outlets are releasing their lists of top albums, top books, or top films of the year. Earlier this month, the Royal Statistical Society got in on the action by announcing its Statistics of the Year. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell. Of media, journalism, and film. Our guest today is David Spiegelhalter. I should say maybe Sir David Spiegelhalter, chair of the Winton Center at the University of Cambridge. He's also the president of the Royal Statistical Society, or RSS, which, as I said, just announced its choices for Statistic of the Year. And I want to point out that he is the first three-time guest on Stats and Stories. That's, that should have been Statistic of the Year. Right there. <laughs> David, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, a great pleasure to be back again. Why why choose a Statistic of the Year in the first place? Well, you know, we're statisticians. We think statistics are immensely important. And uh, we launched this last year as an experiment, you know, just to see if it would catch on. And we were amazed at the interest in it. We are on the radio programs, popular radio programs. And we don't just do a Statistic of the Year. We got a nine ten of them and people love the variety and the choice so we thought we'd do it again <laughs> did what was the criteria that you used i mean you said you had hundreds of uh, submissions so how did we you got, pick we got hundreds of submissions well the, the first criteria was, was that it was faintly true <laughs> I mean, how I, many you did you get old, rid of <laughs> some of the entries were the old joke you know 95 percent of all statistics are made up on oh, the okay. spot and you know you, we expect those but unfortunately, that, that actually is one of the truer statistics, judging by the entries we got, because oh, they no. come in and they sound very impressive, but then you start doing the fact-checking, and so many of them just don't stand up. That, I mean, I, I suppose this is not news to anybody, that there's a lot of fake news around <laughs> in this world, <laughs> a lot of false claims being made, a lot of them statistical, and we ended up getting sent these, so we've had to do some serious filtering mm. to wow. try to get things wow. that we actually think are faintly accurate. So after after you've kind of filtered out the the, the fake, what, <laughs> how, how did you pick uh, among the the real? Oh, very difficult. We had you know, a good panel. We we got journalists, and we got statisticians, official statisticians, all sorts. Um, with, with you know, with some difficulty, we wanted a variety. We didn't want them all gloomy. You know, you could pick ten gloomy statisticians, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, we we don't want to reinforce the impression that statisticians are all just such miserable people. You know, <laughs> gloom, gloom, and um, and we wanted ones that covered also some of the stories that you know we know have been going on throughout throughout the year. I should say the one thing that we haven't got is a Brexit statistic, but that's uh, you know our own local problem that we're having to deal with. I don't know that that's so local, John. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess there are, there are how many that you, you picked? You picked you pick two winners and how many runner-ups? <laughs> yeah, we've got um, two winners and then eight uh, runners-up, highly commended statistics. So one of the things that, that, that I, I was curious about is, is you know, there's, there are lots of ways to report a statistic. 
Mm. You know, you can. And so I, I, I'm going to let you talk about some of the ones that you picked or I'm curious about the, the winners. I think we want to you know that people are just sitting on the edge of their seats <laughs> waiting to hear hear this result. So so a, after you talk about the, the winners, I'd, I'd be curious for you to comment a little bit about why this this representation versus some other representation of the story was compelling to you. So, exactly. So. I mean, it's terribly important because I know, and we all know, you know, we can make any number look big or small, depending on how we frame it, what comparators we make, how what units we use. And so, um, you know, we have tried to frame them, I think, in a way that is most realistic. And as I'll say, when the, when we do the winner, we actually report the frame in two multiple frames in order to get a more balanced wow. feeling about it. When you did this last year for the first time, I know the uh, the statistic, the international statistic, I think, or was it the American statistic or U.S.? It was the international one. The international one that got some, got, was in the Huffington Post and then Kim Kardashian picked it up. How much, how, how much news uh, gener generation came out of that? Oh, we got a lot of coverage, a lot of coverage. That was about, you know, uh, essentially over the last 10 years, the, um, I think the, our main statistic was the number of U.S. citizens killed by lawnmowers every year. And, um, but that, of course, was just a hook to try to draw people in, to compare the number of people that have been killed by, you know, immigrant jihadist terrorists, uh, which is an average of two a year compared with the number, for example, you know, killed by by fellow Americans. Yes, and that was 11,000. 11,000 or so. So, was... so these were very stark figures. Yes. And um, we received some criticism about that. We, you know, we, And I can see why, because it suggests that, well, that's the future risk. And we didn't mean that at all. These were just past rates. This is just what has happened. Mm -hmm. These are statistics of last year. They're not predictions about what's going to happen next year. So what are your statistics this year for the international side of things? And uh, I know you also identify a UK one as well. So what are the winners? Yeah. Okay, the international one, is, I suppose, is a, a slightly negative one. It's more than negative. So it's 90.5%. <laughs> and that's the proportion of plastic waste that has never been recycled. Mm. Now, we also frame it to say, well, 9.5% has been recycled. But it's still not a very large number, given you know you're talking about um, you know six thousand million metric tons of 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 of, of plastic um, that that's actually not in use anymore that has been got rid of, mm -hmm. um, and so you know that means that you know, essentially ten percent only ten percent have been recycled, um, and out of the rest of it, about twelve percent has been incinerated, and the rest is just lying around in landfills or or being dumped in the environment. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, I'm sure it's the same in, in the states. Certainly in the UK, plastics has, has received a lot of attention this year, largely yeah. through yeah. David Attenborough's Blue Planet. These pictures of whales and fish and things like that, with all this plastic in them, and um, and this has become a, a very um, strong um, story. And then there's a really strong study done from the University of California, um, you know, published in, in in Science Advances, actually, you know, did this made this assessment of of the amount of pl plastic that has not been recycled. Mm -hmm. So I'm a general listener, and say I'm watching cable news in America, and I see the statistics come on, and I'm saying, okay, how do they know 9.5% of plastic waste has never been recycled? So uh, I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> so how, how would we respond to that? Because we get a lot of that, you know, people not believing in statistics and certainly not willing to do the the work to find out where that information came from. 
basically it was reported in a UN paper, mm-hmm. in, a, in yes. a UN report, but it comes from a, a published paper um, in uh, in Science Advances, actually from 2017. And, and of course, it's... Um, Oh, interesting. So they got plastic production data from they can get that from industrial production ah. statistics. And then they can look at life product lifetime distributions from eight different industrial use sectors. So so by breaking it up into the different sectors of packaging and so on, um, then they, they can they they've got a, a they've got good data on how long within each sector plastic is in use. And then um, by knowing about the productions, they can work out how much is is, you know how much plastic is 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 out there, so that's how they work out that um, you know thirty percent, only thirty percent of plastics ever produced are currently in use. That means seventy percent has gone, mm-hmm. and then I'm just trying to work out where how they get the amount that's been recycled, and they know from other sources. Then they look at the recycling rates broken down around the world, from Europe and China, um, in, and in the United States, plastic recycling has remained steady at nine percent since 2012. So, so essentially, um, I can start and do this again. It's it's, it's really cool. So they built a, a big model. First of all, a model for plastic production, um, looking at industrial data. Then a model for how long plastic is in is in use, and that enables them to estimate how much plastic is actually in use at the moment, which is um, you know only thirty percent of what's being produced. And then by looking at um, uh, incineration and recycling data from different countries, they can work out how much has been recycled out of everything that's being produced and is not in use anymore. So, so a natural question is when you you've just described a model that's that's estimating a lot of components, yeah. And you know none of these things are known, and so yeah. so there's uncertainty associated with all of this. And and you know what what would you say when people say, well, by reporting a single number, that perhaps there's a that this is conveying an, an overly strong sense of precision. Yeah, that, I would completely agree, and that it would be much better to give a range for these numbers at a minimum. Actually, I believe the giving ranges would make them more trustworthy. I'd feel mm-hmm. happier having a range than a single number. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one can qualify it by saying a round or an estimate and so on. So they've um, they, they've got a relative measure of uh, plus or minus about 6%, 6-7%, um, which isn't too bad. So, so that would be yeah, well, that would that would only take it if it's the total is ten percent. Uh, that would only you know you might say between eight and twelve or something like that had been recycled. Okay, yeah, I I just that that's something I think is such an important point. And a lot of times yeah. when you see these yeah. these kind of headline statistics, there's all there's yeah. always in my mind kind of two things that come. One is is you know how how much how well do they know this number? Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then even when you have some of these other components like like the sixty three million metric tons. Yeah. Do, do people have a sense of of how much that represents? Yeah, no, these are just big numbers. What does it What does it mean? And that's why people will be so much more influenced by seeing a picture of a turtle, you know, with its head through a piece of plastic or something yeah. like that. That was what drives the emotional reaction yeah. to these things. You know, what does six thousand, you know, million metric tons yeah, mean? Right. Um, uh, it's, it's extremely difficult to judge. I mean, one way, of course, is to do it, you know, per per head of population. There's seven billion people in the world, or something. What that's a, what that's a ton each, isn't it? For goodness sake, that's enormous. So, um, yeah, so I think uh, that, you know, there is a problem with all these big numbers. Um, It is, amazing, it is almost exactly a ton each of plastic uh, that 
uh, is no longer eat, eat for each person that's no longer in use. Wow. <laughs> that's uh, that to me is more impressive than the six thousand million metric tons, which I haven't got a clue what that means. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about the statistics of the year, according to the RSS, with Society President David Spiegelhalter. I'm going to ask you to talk now about the UK stat of the year, uh, because I think it's interesting that both of these statistics of the year are somehow related to environmental concerns. Yeah, yeah that, that was a deliberate choice, and we've also chosen one negative and one positive. The, the UK one is a positive environmental one, that on the 30th of June, um, the, the is 28.7 percent is the figure and that's the peak percentage of all electricity produced in the UK due to solar power on the 30th of June. So that means that, amazingly for this sodden country, that, you know, that solar power was the, <laughs> was, the, was the biggest producer of electricity, <laughs> briefly, <laughs> extremely yeah. briefly. And that number's exact then, you know, yeah. that's not, that's, you know, that is a true statistic. But of course, it was only brief. Uh, but it's a staggering change from, you know, solar wasn't, nobody thought about it 10 years ago in this country. So could you give us the list of kind of the highly commended statistics international Yes, yeah. Um, the, we've got some, again, varying between positive and negative ones. Uh, the positive one is that in spite of all the stories, you know, that we hear about the, um, uh, actually, the, the decline of living standards in the West to some extent, uh, worldwide, um, the percentage of the population that are considered in absolute poverty has more than halved since mm -hmm. 2008, essentially in the last 10 years. So it's gone down from 18% to essentially 9%. And it's mm -hmm. quite quite extraordinary um, benefit that, you know, that's happened to people. And, and this isn't a story that makes the international news at all. The fact that far fewer people are living in absolute poverty than were living uh, than 10 years ago. And then, so I, just as a, well, before we go to the other ones, I, I had a, a question for you in terms of reporting this. When I saw, I was wondering if 50% if reduction in absolute poverty would be a more impressive statistic to me than 9.5%. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, no, exactly. No, it's a bit, but I think we chose deliberately that, you know, to use the percentage point reduction, um, you know, and then we can say it's it's halved, essentially. Yeah. But um, in, in this case, we, it would have had a, a bigger emotional hit to say poverty has halved yeah. in the last mm -hmm. 10 years. But actually, no, we, we want to do this, you know, the, the statistic, which is the oh. percentage point reduction. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, we could we can frame this and make it more, give it a, a stronger emotional hit. But we chose not to. You're, you're a risk difference guy than a risk ratio guy here. Yeah, exactly. I believe in absolute, absolute risks, absolute proportions. We, we know that relative risk, relative changes can be a highly manipulative yeah. way in which to communicate, um, you know, changes over time. Sure. Is is part of is part of the statistics of the year to uh, how much b behind the final decisions is what's going to attract a news story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, we we need to get people interested and in, and in learning about statistics. What's going to what's going to get the New York Times to cover this? What's going to get you know the the British uh, press to cover this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a trade-off as well. We can't just have a whole lot of negative, you know, negative stories and they can't be too dull. We want them interesting. But at the same time, they can't all be about celebrities or whatever. You know, <laughs> last year's was was a nice, quite a nice mix. We managed mm -hmm. to combine them too. Um, we couldn't quite find quite one quite like that this time. But um, the, um, uh, we, yeah, clearly, and uh, we want good news stories. But 
but we also want ones that are just important and 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 frankly ones that are stories that are not generally being told mm -hmm. uh, rather than just the celebrity stories the, the stories of poverty having been halved in the last 10 years when I, I nobody's written a story about that this year well not that i've seen it that's not in our news so you had, you had three more that were in your highly commended group so you, you want to just run through them real quickly and then we yeah can... yeah yeah the, the interesting... well the second one it, it, uh, this is i think this is terribly important uh, amazingly from november 2017 to october 2018 is the number of measles cases in europe uh, which is 64,946 that's nearly 65,000 measles cases and two years ago it was 4,000 oh my oh, goodness wow isn't that staggering? That's Have you horrifying. ever seen a 15-fold rise in mm -hmm. two years? Now, this is really terrifying. I mean, this is very serious indeed. And we know why. We know because there's, you know, the, the, all the stories about about vaccines, or giving kids autism or whatever, in spite of being disproved. Um, and, uh, you know, and in, in this country, actually, in Britain, we've recovered from that story largely because um, we've exported Andrew Wakefield to, to the States. <laughs> Thanks. You know, causing trouble there. So, but, but, you know, the story, these the, the number of anti-vaccine websites and the fact that this has become politically acceptable for example in Italy the major parties are arguing against vaccination oh, um, this is very this is very dangerous and um, you know the kids will die and um, and you know this is a, a really bad story and so then then the, ne the next one related to to Russian men <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is really extraordinary. Um, they, they, this year, um, Russia raised the retirement age for men from 60 to 65. Uh, unfortunately for Russian men, 65 is about their current life expectancy. Oh, wow. So it's only just above that. So it's estimated that four in 10 Russian men, 40%, will actually die before they get to their pensionable age. Oh, man. You know because, what I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, which is which is quite true compared with say in the um, uh, in the uh, U.S. you know uh, and the UK, about eighty percent of men will get to their retirement age and, and in the U.K. eighty-seven percent of men will live past sixty-five. I'm, I'm sixty-five. I ju I'm just taking my pension, so I'm a lucky one of those eighty-seven percent. I, I really like that that part of when when you're reporting out the idea of putting that context. Mm -hmm. You know, when people think about that, when you first report that forty percent, you know, the question is, is that is that big or little? Mm -hmm. And by giving the that other example with the UK and US, I find yeah. that really a nice part of, of contextualizing the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's still in the UK. Twenty percent of men, twenty-one percent won't do it. So you know, it's uh, it's about half that figure in the UK. About thirteen percent won't make their retirement age. So you know, it's about, but in Russia, then that's three times that rate, which mm -hmm. is which is very high. You need the international context for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how about your last one? Kardashian oh, yes. again. <laughs> yes, this, yeah. no, this, was, this was a bit of a um, celebrity thing. This is 1.3 billion. This is extraordinary. The amount wiped off Snapchat's value within a day of one Kylie Jenner tweet. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a bit of, you know, uh, you know uh, I say flagrant appeal to this. Sort of <laughs> flagrant populism. And, uh, just a brief treat that she made in February. You know, 2018. Say so, so. So does 
does anyone else not open Snapchat anymore? Or is it just me? Oh, this yeah. is sad. <laughs> yeah. 367,000 likes. I mean, it is extraordinary. Oh, mercy. Yeah. I mean, there are other things that were changing at the time about Snapchat. So, again, we've got to be careful with drawing, you know, a causal pattern. We're statisticians. We know we can't draw a strict causal pattern. But this is too good a story to miss. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have a question about the the UK statistics. Um, and, and maybe we can talk about some of the other highly commended ones. But I wanted to ask about Jaffa Cakes. Oh yes. So how did this? Do you have how you did have this? Uh, no, no, I was going to ask you to explain what exactly they are and why this is a noteworthy statistic for people okay. who well, are not in the UK. <laughs> They're a kind of form of biscuit, but they they had to go to court to claim they're a cake because then they didn't have to pay a VAT tax on them if they called it a cake. Oh. But essentially, <laughs> it's, a, it's a sort of biscuit um, uh, with a, a soft uh, bottom but a, and a chocolate top with a bit of sort of um, orangey, uh, you know, jammy stuff inside as well. Mm. I love them. <laughs> they are a, a real sugar rush. They, I, I love them. I have to keep them out of my way. And they normally sell them in... in in, 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 in smallish boxes. But at Christmas, they release what used to be called a yard of Jaffa cake, which was 36 inches long, an old yard. And that That's contained a lot of sugar. Last year, that contained 48 Jaffa cakes. Well, now it only contains 40 Jaffa cakes. The cakes haven't changed the same size. You just get less of them in uh. your box. And, and actually, the box has shrunk. <laughs> they couldn't fill it out to a yard anymore. So now they have to call it a, a sort of crack, Christmas cracker of Jaffa cakes. And, you know, what this is, the, you know, the Jaffa cakes are incredible. They sell billions of these things. I, mean, I love them. But, some, uh, so, but this is just the one example of, you know, the shrinking size of products. Now, you could say this is a good thing. It would be a great thing if people didn't eat so many Jaffa cakes. <laughs> <laughs> and if, as, you know, Mars bars and things have all got smaller, this is very good. Portion control is incredibly important. It'd be wonderful if people didn't eat so much, but um, the price hasn't gone down. Of course, I, I love the way you describe it as shrinkflation too. Yeah. <laughs> shrinkflation, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Toblerone got in. There's a lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, that got a lot of um, interest last year as well when they reduced the the size of their chocolate bar, but but not the prices. <laughs> So, so this is this is not a matter, perhaps, of, of, of global importance, but um, people notice this kind of thing, and it, and it, it again, it made a good good news stories. We they got a lot of coverage. Were, were you surprised at the the one report about the the amount of shopping that was in store versus online? Yeah, yeah, this is the issue. Now, now what about the we had to decide about the framing of this? Do you frame it as saying that eighteen percent of of all shopping is now online? You know, the big number one in five pounds right, is spent right. online, or do you frame it as eighty-two percent of shopping is still done in the shop rather than online? Is it you know, do you do a positive or a negative frame? Because uh, I've seen this story reported in both ways. Um, I, actually, for us, I think we found it quite surprising that, um, given you know the huge publicity around um, the rise of online shopping, the yeah. closure of so many shops in the high street now, we I thought it was going to be a bigger figure than this. I'm surprised it was only 82. percent But there again, of course, um, you've well, I was going to say I was going to say you've got food and everything like that, but a lot of that's done online as well. Mm -hmm. But still, you know, that's you know, it's 82 percent um, is still done by people walking into a shop and paying. 
I wonder how that compares with the U.S. That would be interesting. Oh, God, I don't know what the U.S. is. That seems very high, doesn't it? That does seem high to me, Compared to the U.S. Everybody's using Amazon here. Yeah, yeah. Well, people use that here as well, you know, a huge amount as well. So um, I I, 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 I must admit, I don't know the U.S. figure, and I better find that out. (laughs) You know, when when you were – another one of the stories on the commended stats related to to trains running on time, (laughs) and, I, you know, that's something we we all – all of us that travel – and I, you know, I was going to, when you talk about rail travel, but I was wondering how, how, what the rail travel in Great Britain compared to that in Europe, or how it might compare to air travel. I was thinking about some of this contextualizing and framing this too. Yeah, we really should. I, I, again, I'm, uh, I, I think that's a very good point that we need to go and look at that because the reason why that story's in here is that we had an utter disaster this year with yeah. British trains. They introduced a new timetable. They hadn't planned it properly. Huge mm. numbers of cancellations, absolute chaos. Um, and there were strikes as well. So, I mean, this 86% of trains running on time is terrible because, you know, they're supposed to be above 95%. That's oh. what they mm. claim oh, okay. to be able to do. And that's where you can start getting compensation as well as they paid out a fortune in compensation i was traveling on trains in the summer and um you know they were just announcing on every train telling you how to claim compensation i was making the claim even before the train came into you know got got to my destination i had my online compensation claim you know submitted so um it was it was absolute shambolic um so this is far worse than um it it generally is as i said it's worse for for you know nearly 15 years in this country it's Mm -hmm. actually been quite reasonably late but i don't know the international comparisons that's mm-hmm. something i should find out but it's it's actually um it was so notable this year that actually the whole system you know really fell apart in the summer we are uh starting getting ready to wrap up but i do before we go want to ask you about this um the first listed commended statistic for the uk about uh female executives yeah. at footsie yeah. 250 companies and sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, that's um, the figure is six point five percent, which is six point four percent. The fi- sorry, the figure is six point four percent, which is the percentage of female executive directors within FTSE two hundred and fifty companies, which you know the big, the big companies yeah. in the. Okay. And um, gender pay gap has been a massive issue in this country because actually this country, for the first time by law, you know, larger and, and medium-sized employers have to report their gender pay gaps. Now, unfortunately, those are just reported as what women get paid apart from than men get paid. So, And we were going to use those figures, but actually they're not – they can be very misleading because it includes – Many women are in part-time work and doing right. other different sorts of jobs. They're not adjusted for the kind of work. So what we want to do is to pick um, a, a job um, which you know where you were doing you know everyone was roughly comparable, and then looking at what um, percentage of, of were female, and and it's extraordinarily low, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. I mean, they, they, it changed. It went from 38 to 30 in a year. I don't think that's that's not really statistically significantly different, but it's certainly no indication. Of of, of things getting bigger. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. David, thank you so much for being here. This has been a really interesting conversation today. Always a pleasure, David. I, I still think three should have been on there. Number, what's, what's, of, oh, the, number of times David <laughs> Spiegelhalter yeah. was on Stats and Stories. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that was okay. Sorry to be fumbling around. As you, as you see, you can tell it's the first interview I've done on these, and I've got to do a bit more preparation for some more background on them. Um, yeah, but that was so that was very helpful to me in fact. <laughs> well good. 
Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu, or check us out at statsandstories.net, and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.